Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. The real app performance has been the U.S. corporate high yield. Are the companies lean enough? Have they trimmed all the fat? The semiconductor business is a really cyclical business. Breaking market headlines and corporate news from across the globe. Do investors like the M&A that we've seen? These are two big time blue chip companies. The window between the peak and cut changing super fast. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney. On Bloomberg Radio. On today's Bloomberg Intelligence Show, we dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we'll look at why restaurants are confronting a slowdown in consumer spending. Plus, we'll discuss why Home Depot sales fell for a fifth consecutive quarter. But first, we dive into earnings from the world's most valuable chip maker. NVIDIA reported fourth quarter revenue that sailed past analyst expectations. It also delivered another eye-popping sales forecast for the current quarter. This is thanks to insatiable demand for NVIDIA's artificial intelligence accelerators. For more, co-host Emily Grafeo and I were joined by Kunjan Sobani, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Semiconductor Analyst. We first asked for his take on NVIDIA's earnings results. Any earnings surprise from NVIDIA is no longer a surprise. We have come to sort of expect this to be a new norm. Uh, but there were a lot of positive, reassuring things. On the supply side, we saw supply coming up really strong. More importantly, supply getting diversified and the benefits for which were seen in their gross margin, which beat the estimates. But more important was the assurance that demand continues to stay strong. And not just from the large cloud players, we all are aware of how much money they're spending, but demand strength was broad-based across their enterprise customers, across the different verticals. So that really reassures us for the 2024. What did you make of the CEO's statement that generative AI has hit the tipping point. I saw that headline and I didn't actually really understand what that meant. So what did you think of that? I mean, look, it's really Jensen. Um, if you have been following the company for the past 10 years at every junction, that's what his messaging always <laughs> is in whatever they're working on. So, but apart from that, I would really, you know, uh, ask investors to look into the end data points rather than what just he's saying. I mean, he's a very important person right now, but we look at the end data points, the customers are really increasing their AI spend, right? The, uh, the IT total CapEx budgets are increasing, but the AI portion within that is also increasing. And it's not just at the chip level, the contracts that they have with their software customers, even those customers are guiding up their revenue targets. Hey, Kunjan, I love their customer list that they read off. It's kind of a who's who of Silicon Valley, you know, Facebook, Google, whatever their new names are. What's the next, is there a next set of customers out there above and beyond kind of the household names that, that we all know that maybe they're targeting? 
Yes, uh, and enterprise segment is sort of the new, uh, the next area that they're really targeting, right? They already have the big, large spenders, but now they want to diversify and expand their reach across enterprises. And the second big target now is sort of governments and reached sovereign governments and sovereign mm-hmm. wealths, right? That's what they're targeting, that they believe AI will be, you know, because of ge- geopolitical and trade issues will be more regional and every big economy will need to spend on that. Are there any headwinds that investors need to be <laughs> looking out for? Because I just looked on the ANR function yep. on Bloomberg, and there are zero cells for <laughs> NVIDIA. There was one last yeah. night from Morningstar, and now he's upgraded to a hold. Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at just what the data says, usually the stock price follows the analyst price targets. It seems here the price targets are following the stock price. <laughs> when we look at the fundamentals, right, there was really nothing that uh, to highlight as a risk factor in the earnings and really in the near term for 2024. But if we were to form a bear thesis, a couple of things that would we would look at as risk factors for the long term. One is the China risk. We did see China revenue almost reduced by half versus 3Q in this quarter, right? Uh, And we know this problem is not going away, if at all getting worse. So right now they are easily able to offset what they could have shipped to China while shipping to other customers in US and other regions. But at some point when the demand supply sort of normalizes and the growth rates become more of a normal run rate, uh, you know, this is taking out a bite out of that opportunity that they could have served in China. So that's one risk factor on the long term. The second being their largest customers, which are the cloud players, have started to design their own chips. Hmm. So again, this is far out, but at some point, this still takes a bite out of the Apple that NVIDIA could have served. So that's kind of where I wanted to go, Kunjan. I mean, just the competitive environment. Can you explain why these guys are the only game in town? That seems odd to me. I mean, it's not by an accident. These guys were sort of the inventor, if you will, for the GPU. They have been working on a GPU for for decades and okay. out investing everyone being at the leading edge. So th- this was the same question when we talked about gaming and when we talked about crypto, right? The last two waves which drove the growth for this company. It was not by accident. They have been at this forefront of these new applications where the application suddenly realized, well, GPU is the best case uh, compute platform and that's why they adopted GPU. Same thing what we're seeing with AI. So this was not by accident. If you look at their R&D spend, which they guided to be in growing by mid thirties next year, that's a significant amount of R&D dollars they continue to spend and to keep, again, being at the leading edge of the next cycle of innovation. Can you talk a little bit also about the gaming revenue here? Because I'm looking at your report, you said gaming's better than seasonal top line, but what was really uh, driving that? Because I actually don't really know if I know anything about NVIDIA's (laughs) gaming involvement. Yeah, so the last quarter was, if you look at typical seasonality, we expected it to be a down quarter, at least by mid single digits, but it came in flat, right? So, and the strength, the reason driver for that was better demand for their RTX products. These are their gaming cards, you know, in in desktops and what gamers get. So this is what came in better than they had expected due to the holiday season. Now, this is again a temporary move and sort of not, no longer a big focus for investors, Mm. but that was still good to see that in a typical down seasonal quarters, they were still able to do better than seasonality. Our thanks to Kunjan Sabani, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Semiconductor Analyst. We move next to a big M&A deal in the banking industry. Earlier in the week, Capital One agreed to buy Discover Financial Services in a $35 billion all-stock deal. This will create the largest U.S. credit card company by loan volume. 
To discuss this deal and the latest in consumer finance space, co-host Bailey Lipschultz and I were joined by Ben Elliott. He's a consumer finance analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We asked him what Capital One is thinking with its latest deal. So everything is driven by scale in the credit card business. Um, and the big thought here from Capital One is that if they can acquire this sort of rare and valuable thing that Discover has, which is a discrete proprietary payments network, then they can sort of start to compete with Visa and MasterCard on a, on a much bigger scale over time, and they're paying a premium for it. Ben, is the timing at all a surprise, just given kind of the issues that Discover had towards the uh, end of 2023? It leaves Capital One with a, a potential legal overhang. The legal issues are not settled yet at Discover. They've had a couple of new issues that are sort of outside of the scope of, of what they've been dealing with over the past couple of years. Um, Discover's been talking about sort of a $500 million a year run rate of additional compliance expense. So that's sort of a burden that that Capital One is going to have to take on with this acquisition. But I think it's probably pretty well understood the scope of that. And I think it's it's probably priced into the deal. All right. So give us a sense of the size of Visa. I guess the Visa network, the MasterCard network, and now this new combined network. Is it competitive to Visa and, and MasterCard? And I guess even Amex? So historically, it's... Uh, completely non-competitive. Okay. Um, Visa and MasterCard together are about $10 trillion in domestic U.S. credit and debit card volume, and Discover is about $550 billion. So it's, it's always been the sort of the tiny, uh, you know, redheaded stepchild of the, <laughs> of the large payment networks. But, you know, if you add to that Capital One's hundreds of billions of dollars of credit card loans and, and you sort of extrapolate future growth there, it has the potential to sort of compete more like an American Express, which is closer to one and a half trillion. Ben, I feel like we can't talk about deals without the threat of regulatory scrutiny. What does this bring and what could the FTC raise any red flags about? Overall, this deal, I think, will be relatively sort of non-offensive to regulators. Discover is historically not been very competitive with the large networks. So actually bringing sort of the power of Capital One to bear will make it more competitive with the large networks, which has the potential to, to give customers a real sort of fourth alternative. Whereas in the past, you really only had one option, right? You get a Discover card. It only has one sort of set of, of rewards. It's got a relatively low credit line versus some of the other offerings. It doesn't have sort of, you know, high-end uh, travel rewards offerings. So I think if Capital One can start to issue some of its sort of higher-end cards on the Discover network, that could be pro-competitive, and that might make the deal somewhat more attractive to regulators. Ben, in terms of kind of what these credit cards offer. Discover, from my understanding, mainly cash back. Capital One has a range of some of those rewards cards. How does that impact potentially acquiring new customers and new users of for both companies, or I guess the folded in company? Yeah, so I, I think that will make it a challenge for Capital One to issue some of its sort of high fee, high reward cards on the Discover network, because historically, the Discover network has only been used for a very limited cash back card with, with caps at I think it's like $1,500 a quarter of cash back. So for your high spenders, people who are putting tens of thousands of dollars on a credit card, um, that's not a very attractive offering. So that means that the brand has not been sort of in their minds as you know a potential credit card they might acquire. So Capital One is going to have to do some relatively heavy lifting. And you see that in what is a very modest run rate synergy assumption in their, in their sort of uh, deal model, which only cuts back Discover's marketing costs about 10%. So, you know, Capital One is going to have to do some pretty heavy marketing, I think, to start to leverage that network on the credit card side. American Express, what's the investment call there these days, Ben? What are investors thinking about Amex? 
you know, Amex is the super premium bastion of the highest spending and sort of most financially sound customers. So that is a sort of a recession safe trade, if you will. So, you know, when people are looking at the, the forward curve and they're seeing rate cuts, you know, they're expecting a recession potentially. They look at the Amex spender and think that this person will last the longest and, and have the sort of lowest um, level of charge-offs to a potential recession. So that makes it very attractive. And additionally, uh, Amex has a ton of momentum in acquiring millennial and Gen Z high-earning customers, which is the most valuable sort of wallet share that's out there. And Amex does it better than anyone else. So that also kind of makes them attractive to investors. What is the big competitive overview of kind of consumer finance? Are we using more credit, more debit, more Venmo? What are kind of the big trends there? Yeah, so there's been huge growth uh, in in credit volume over the last couple of years, um, especially sort of in the post-pandemic period. There's been even more of a secular shift away from cash. Um, as for the various sort of channels, right, um, credit is really attractive to higher-end uh, consumers, people with more discretionary income, because that offers the huge valuable reward potential. And then if you step down to uh, debit cards, there's some cash back, but for the most part, not a lot of rewards there, um, but there's some convenience. And then sort of the, the lower tier kind of um, fintech payment systems, you know, they offer, they're sort of targeted at sort of younger sort of Gen Z, um, lower spenders, and they are the people who are exploring things like buy now, pay later, which is sort of a way to give credit to people who don't really have a lot of like credit history or uh, substantial earnings history. Our thanks to Ben Elliott, Bloomberg Intelligence Consumer Finance Analyst. Coming up, a conversation with Gene Soroka, Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles, on why cargo volumes are picking up. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. 
turn now to the restaurant business. Restaurants are confronting a slowdown in consumer spending. January same-store sales fell across the restaurant industry. Tough year-over-year comparisons and cold weather hurt customer traffic. Co-host Bailey Lipschultz and I were joined by Michael Halen, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst. We asked him about some of the trends coming out of the pandemic and how much people are spending on restaurants these days. Yeah, you know, obviously there was a couple of tough years uh, due to the pandemic, mainly for the full service restaurants due to, you know, uh, limitations on hours and and, uh, different regulations on indoor dining rooms, also just apprehension by uh, customers. But uh, there was a pretty strong bounce back in restaurant sales in 2022 and then they kind of got hit with that that margin pressure right 2023 started off pretty strong in early 2023 we were lapping omicron so uh the comparisons were very easy so early 2023 was very good sales started to slide in the second half of last year and now that they're lapping those strong comps from a year ago we saw some real weakness in uh, january and so far in early february and when I look at, Michael, when I go to the, the fast food restaurants, when I do eat out, Paul, yep. I'm, a, I'm a cheap guy. <laughs> Prices are high. I go to, I go to Chipotle and I, it's costing me 17 bucks. What? How do price hikes and expanding margins, how are those things playing out and how are those going to continue to play out in 2024 given this uncertainty around consumers maybe tapering some of this spending? Yeah, uh, you know, that's a great question. There was a lot of, you know, uh, ruckus really online over the $18 Big Mac meal in in (laughs) some locations last week. So, you know, this is something that we're looking at. And, you know, same store sales were so weak in January. They were down over 2% for fast food, which we typically don't see unless we're in a recession. They were down 7.7% at casual dining. Um, Investors are kind of looking past it, saying that the weather was really cold, but people still have to eat, right? And so, so there's kind of some worry here for us because like some of the economic indicators we watch when you look under the hood aren't looking great. So credit card debt is at an all-time high, 1.1 trillion. Credit card rates are at an all-time high at 21% APRs. Uh, delinquencies have been rising for auto loans as well as credit card loans. Um, and they're now above the 15-year average and pre-pandemic level. So there is some concern, but right now there's just so many variables going on with the weather, with the tough comparisons, and with these economic indicators to figure out exactly how much of this weakness is because of what, right? And so, yeah. um, but one thing we've seen is customers are dealing with the higher prices and with the higher inflation by putting it on their credit cards, which is not a sustainable situation. What are some of the names that you cover that if we do see the general consumers tightening spending will be better positioned to continue to deliver sales. What we've seen, one of the weakest segments has actually been fine dining. A lot of that has been just a pullback in spending. People have been buying less expensive wines, you know, uh, cutting back maybe on, on appetizers. In a real economic slowdown, fast food and quick service tend to do better because they'll have value menu items uh discounts will be more prevalent and so although you'll see a lot of low income consumers kind of trade down to the grocery store the quick service chains will see a lot of you know middle and higher income consumers trade away from a higher price full service occasion and maybe dine at mcdonald's a little bit more often hey michael talk to us about the labor situation in the restaurant business. I know for a long time, like a lot of industries, you know, the restaurant industry had trouble getting labor. Where is it now? 
full service is pretty much where it was prior to the pandemic. So, you know, think of uh, Chili's and Applebee's and and most of those casual dining chains that we cover, Cheesecake Factory, they're, they're fully staffed right now. So they've recovered pretty nicely. Quick service has been slower. Turnover remains a lot higher, which is crazy to say because it's probably 140% for hourly turnover heading into the pandemic. Now it's it's probably about 170%. So they're having a lot more of a difficult time holding on to employees. That being said, it's been improving. It improved throughout the year last year. One of the, the toughest times to staff the store was that late night portion, but chains figured out it's supply and demand and they have to offer more, a higher wage to those employees to attract good workers and and they've been doing that and so that last kind of part of the day that was really struggling to hire is starting to come back too so so it's getting better it's uh not where it was two years ago two years ago it was very difficult you know there's a lot of people concerned that uh restaurant workers would never come back but Mm -hmm. a lot of them have and it's much better than it was Michael, to take the labor conversation and twist it just a bit, I was just in California for the last two weeks where minimum wage is going to be 20 bucks in, in April 1st. Oh, went to in and out twice. Don't you worry. <laughs> but so $20 minimum wage. I'm seeing a lot of these self-service kiosks getting rid of the kind of front of house, if you will, at some of these fast food chains. How does a higher minimum wage impact what these companies are going to do and impact their margins in turn? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's going to be more technology. And it's no coincidence that the companies that we cover that have the highest exposure to California, so uh, that's Jack in the Box, that's Chipotle, they're leading the charge when it comes to automation technology. Right now, Jack in the Box is testing AI automated fryers. Chipotle has an automated make line that they're hoping to roll out in the, in the coming years, as well as uh, automated AI or tortilla chip fryers, right? So it's going to be more automation in the restaurant, but it, it takes time for that to be implemented because right now the, the cost for that automation technology is very high, right? But as the wage rates continue to rise and as the, the price of the technology falls, which it always does over time, eventually there's going to be an ROI and a lot of those fast food workers are going to be replaced by technology. Our thanks to Michael Halen, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst. We move next to the Port of Los Angeles, one of the world's busiest seaports and a leading gateway for international trade in North America. The Port of LA recently reported the second biggest January on record for cargo volumes. For more, co-host Emily Grafeo and I were joined by Gene Soroka, Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles. We started by asking Gene how business is going. Business is really good. We're running at about 75 to 80% of full capacity at the Port of Los Angeles. Anything but normal, though, around the world with issues in the Panama Canal with respect to drought in the Middle East with concerns around safety and security and broader looks at how this U.S. economy is going to continue to propel itself thanks to the American consumer. So let's start off with where we're at right now. Six consecutive months of growth, the second best January ever, up 18% compared to last year, and our first quarter outlook Is it about 2.2 million containers or a 20% year-on-year increase compared to Q1 of last year? So how would you assess then the overall health of the global supply chain relative to what we saw during the pandemic? Because like Paul said, it seemed like everyone was suddenly talking about uh, the supply chain. And where are we relative to just a few years ago? Emily, I think we're in a lot better shape. We've learned a lot from what we saw then too, but we're front of mind now to so many people outside our general industry, whether it's us looking for our packages, what's on the store shelves, or just the general consciousness about how this port 
supply chain and trade business impacts economies and jobs around the world. What we see in Los Angeles is that there are a couple things happening right now. The stability of that labor contract has given us about a four percentage point boost in market share. So some of that cargo that we lost during the protracted negotiations has started to come back. Not all of it, much more work to do, but good trajectory. Now, with the Panama Canal suffering drought and the concerns of safety in the Middle East with respect to the Houthi going yep. after the, the ships and the and cargo and, and oil tankers, you're starting to see more cargo shifted our way. Not services being collapsed, not new vessels coming in, but higher levels of capacity and utilization. And importers and exporters saying, I may not want to take that much time, but the bigger difference is the gap between cargo that's moving east and Gulf Coast versus the West Coast is wider from a freight cost perspective. That's important because we're right now in the middle of our annual contracting season for freight. All right, so you're, again, right in the port of Los Angeles on the West Coast. You probably have the best view of anybody. Uh, what's it like now? What's, what's your expectation for that important route of trade coming from China to your port? Paul, it's still our most dominant trading partner. 53% of Port of Los Angeles business is with China. Now that's down from 57% at the end of year 2022, and it may drop into the mid 40s, as many supply chain executives are continuing with their China plus one strategy, looking at other locations to source and produce goods in. But still, 45, 50 years of supply chain relationships exist. You don't tear that apart overnight. Mm -hmm. right? Just the other day, the White House said that they were concerned that more than 200 ship-to-shore cranes at U.S. ports are manufactured by China um, and can be serviced and programmed remotely, creating a cybersecurity vulnerability. What did you make of those comments? How legitimate are the White House's concerns? It's also very important to us. The Port of Los Angeles, Emily, was the first in the nation to create a cybersecurity operations center back in 2014 with the help of the Department of Homeland Security. Today, that system is stopping more than 60 million cyber intrusion attempts per month. It also gave us awareness to create a cyber resilience center, also one of the first in the world, to bring in the private sector partners with us. That co-helped with the IBM folks has now stopped a half a dozen cyber intrusion attempts to private sector interests that they were otherwise unaware of. So this work must continue. Gene, so is your business, I mean, is it a, it's a GDP business, is that how you kind of plan it out here? And so do you get a sense of, are your customers, are they telling you, what are they telling you about their sense of the economy? Broadly speaking, most are upbeat. 70% of our GDP is tied to you and me buying goods. Yep. Now, although, the consumer purchasing was down a little bit in January, it was not unexpected. Great sales for the holiday season, nearly a trillion dollars, up 3.8% last year. There was gonna be a, a little bit of a lull in January, but the forward look is strong. The Atlanta Fed is currently estimating first quarter GDP around 2.9%, mm -hmm. healthier than some had expected, and fourth quarter GDP came in beyond expectations. Again, what we see in the forward look is an order cycle that runs about six months ahead of when we actually buy things in the store or online. That inventory flow is a leading economic indicator, appears good. So Gene, I'm the captain of this big monster ship. I got my containers all over the place. How they don't fall off, I have no idea. I come into your port, 
how long am I there before I get back on my way? I look at these vital statistics, as I call them, Paul, every morning, and we're at or better than when we were pre-COVID. The largest ships that come into the Port of Los Angeles average 12,000 containers on and off, best in the industry every call. Four and a half days is the amount of time a ship is in port working. That's right where it should be. Our thanks to Gene Soroka, Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles. Coming up on the program, we'll discuss why President Biden's electric vehicle dreams are making life more difficult for U.S. car makers. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We take a look next at the home improvement retailer Home Depot. This week, the company reported revenue that dropped for a fifth consecutive quarter. For more, co-host Bailey Lipschultz and I spoke with Drew Redding, Bloomberg Intelligence U.S. Home Building Analyst. I first asked for his take on Home Depot's earnings. Sure. So the 3.5% decline in same-store sales was pretty much right in line with what was expected. Um, you have to keep in mind, though, coming into the quarter, the bar was pretty low for Home Depot. They continue to face consumers who are pulling back in big-ticket discretionary categories. So think things like flooring, cabinets, countertops. Uh, conversely, they're seeing relative strength in some of the smaller scale projects. So those big ticket projects are being deferred. We do think eventually they get completed, but that might be more of a 2025 story. But coming into this quarter, the, the real debate was around how 2024 was going to shape up. So they offered guidance suggesting that same store sales would fall about 1%. And given what we heard from a handful of their suppliers over the last couple of weeks, which we're calling for a flat market. I think people it caught people a little bit off guard, ourselves included. We do think that the first half is going to be comparatively weaker than the second half as rates start to pull back, and we think you could maybe get a little bit of a boost from the housing market. 
Drew, this may be a dumb question, but when I look at some of the consumer data that we've been seeing, we are seeing uh, rising 90-day credit card delinquencies. How do things like that, what does the normal spender at Home Depot look like? You're mentioning kind of a pullback on some of those bigger projects. What kind of demographic does Home Depot really see in terms of driving sales and kind of putting those numbers together? Yeah, so about 80% of Home Depot's customers are current homeowners. They typically have higher incomes, so they are higher spenders, and they're, they're a little bit more resilient of a customer. Um, I think where we're seeing the relative weakness is in some of the, the low-end spending, which has kind of gone away on the DIY side. But, you know, if we look big picture, what's happening in the home improvement market is we're seeing a reversion to more typical spending patterns. So if you think back to the pandemic, we had the share of PCE that went towards um, household durables was at an all-time record. And we've seen that moderate since really the first half of 2023. So we think that there's a bit more of a reversion that needs to take place through the remainder of this year, which is gonna keep total industry sales muted. You know, but you talked about the consumer. You also have the consumer out there who's battling with the cumulative impact of massive inflation over the last couple of years. So, you know, while we look at that head number, headline number and we see that it's moderating, it's really the cumulative impact that's kind of pressuring spending in the category. Hey Drew, what's the, what do you think is a normalized top line growth rate for like a Home Depot? I'm looking, you know, pre-pandemic it was kind of a mid single digit grower, then of course exploded, you know, during the mm -hmm. pandemic with some, you know, big double digit gains. What do you kind of model out here for top line growth? Yeah, I think, I think in a normalized environment, which we think we get back to in 2025 is probably in the three to 4% range as a baseline. You know, there's a couple of industry factors that we think will support that. Like I mentioned, we think as rates start to moderate, perhaps as we get through this year, we think that you could start to see a boost from existing home sales. Remember, existing home sales are at the lowest level in more than 25 years. And we know that people who move spend about twice as much on remodeling as those who don't. So while we don't see total housing turnover returning to, you know, kind of that five and a half level anytime soon, we do think the fact that things have been so depressed does serve as a tailwind as we move through the year. At the same time, you know, we've had over 40% increases in home prices since the pandemic. So homeowners equity right now is at all time highs. The average home has about $300,000 in equity. So we think that's a source of pent up demand for big ticket projects that that once again, as rates start to moderate, um, people will get more comfortable tapping that equity. And Drew, with that in mind, you mentioned some of those big purchases, bigger projects. Uh, how much of that was pulled forward though during the pandemic when people were buying homes? We saw a booming market around the US and it did seem like cash being relatively free with the, the surplus spending and stimulus checks that people were putting money into home improvement. Yeah, great question. And, and I think that goes back to the share of personal consumption that was spent on home improvement. It was a lot of that stimulus money that was out there for everybody. Um, in terms of the big ticket project, we think more of the pull forward was probably done in the DIY segment. That's really where you saw the boom in early in the pandemic. Um, that being said, we have seen contractor backlogs over the last couple of years be you know elevated compared to, to more traditional levels. So to some extent, it, it has been in both the DIY and big ticket category. But we do think that the big ticket category is where we're likely to see more growth for Home Depot as they go after the professional contractor, as they leverage, you know, the age investments consumers are making because of the age of the housing stock, that pent up equity they have in their home. Our thanks to Drew Redding, Bloomberg Intelligence U.S. Home Building Analyst.
We move next to the auto industry. Recently, President Biden has been using his multi-billion dollar Inflation Reduction Act to try and create a more U.S.-centric electric vehicle supply chain. One of the goals is to reduce China's influence over global metals markets. But U.S. actions have only made life more difficult for its car makers. For more on this, co-host Bailey Lipschultz and I were joined by Craig Trudell, Bloomberg Global Auto's editor. He co-wrote the Big Take column, Biden's EV dreams are a nightmare for Tesla and the U.S. car industry. We first asked Craig for some context on what's happening. I think this is a really uh, challenging thing that the Biden administration was trying to do, right? They were trying to jumpstart the EV industry in the U.S. I, I would say, you know, you can give them high marks for what they've done in terms of the amount of uh, manufacturing investment they've attracted. It's, it's really been remarkable, the response that we've seen there. On the other side of the equation, the demand side, I, I think, you know, the marks are way more mixed. And I think, you know, the challenges that we're going to see in the years to come, you know, assuming, of course, IRA, you know, stands up if we see a change in, in the White House uh, later this year. Uh, but whether or not manufacturers can sort of pull off what uh, Biden, you know, is asking of them, which is to really set up a EV and battery supply chain that is less reliant on China and eventually is just not reliant on China. And that's proving to be an extremely difficult task. And that's what we try to lay out today in ways that are, you know, really, it, it's, a, it's a complicated issue. You know, Tesla, everyone thinks about as, you know, being a very sort of made in America uh, car brand. And, and, you know, they sort of are recognized as one uh, legitimately, but you know, when given the opportunity uh, to import batteries uh, because of the fact that the IRA, you know, didn't really necessarily grow some teeth until uh, the beginning of this year, we saw, you know, just in a matter of months, uh, Tesla import two and a half billion dollars worth of, of EV batteries from China. Wow. And Craig, that's happening because I, it feels like every time we talk about GM, Ford, Tesla, a lot of these companies are losing money making their EVs. So what was the point of the IRA if not to kind of streamline, I guess, the kind of inputs of, of these batteries? I think what, what you have here is a situation where, you know, Joe Manchin was, you know, the, the player who Washington really just had to sort of bend to his will. And he was really reluctant to, you know, allow for electric vehicles to continue to get tax credits. He was opposed to them. And he said, okay, industry, We'll, we'll give you these tax credits, but you build me a supply chain. That, of course, you know, sort of didn't take into account sort of, you know, the complexities of the supply chain and the fact that China is just so dominant in this space. And they've really uh, sort of, you know, methodically, you know, for a time quietly, you know, built this, you know, staggeringly strong position in terms of, you know, the control of, you know, the inputs, whether it's, you know, nickel and lithium, graphite, uh, you know, these inputs are going to be really, really difficult to source, not only just, you know, whether they're mined in, in China, but whether they're sort of processed and refined and, you know, the sort of cost difference that, that the West is going to have to sort of overcome really just can't be, you know, sort of overstated at this point. And folks, if you want to see this article, it's a fantastic article, really deeply reported, great graphics, makes it easy for me because I like the pictures. Bloomberg.com slash big take is kind of where you find it. Big team effort. So, you know, Craig, I see in your reporting here in 2023, the IRA required that at least half of the value of battery components had to be assembled in North America and that 40% of the raw materials had to be sourced from the U.S. And in 2027, that raw material requirement is going to double to 80%. Those numbers, can they be achieved in that time frame? 
I think that's one of the things that, uh, you know, it sort of depends on which company you ask. And I think, you know, some of the concerns that, that uh, the industry is having here is the fact that some of these raw materials, the prices have really collapsed and that you would sort of think, oh, that's a good thing for the auto companies. But if you're trying to build uh, a supply chain in North America for these raw materials and the prices for them have, have absolutely, you know, sort of the bottom has come out. I think of lithium in particular, you've, you've seen just this dramatic, you know, drop in, in prices that significantly undermines the economics of those projects. And so I think the raw materials in particular are a real challenge. I think battery components will be less of a challenge, but even there it, it is, you know, a matter of you can't just sort of snap your fingers and, and open up a bunch of plants for these various components. It does take time, you know, to dig up the ground and, and uh, put up these, these plants that, uh, are coming, but uh, are, are taking some time. And Craig, across the automakers, I'm looking at, at the reporting again, seven of Tesla's 12 models sold in the US fully cleared the IRAs, sourcing hurdles and qualified for the tax credit. What percentage of EVs being sold in the US are clearing that hurdle? I think because Tesla is still so dominant in the US, we're at a point where you know the EVs that uh, do the most volume are largely qualifying at the moment. But I think the fact that those raw material requirements that kick in next year uh, and then escalate in the years uh, that follow, that's really where we're going to see even more of a sort of level of, of screws put on the industry. But I think you know the other car maker that I think is particularly well positioned. I would just I'd call out to General Motors. I think. The fact that they have a localized supply chain for batteries, they have a, a joint venture with a, a Korean uh, battery supplier. We're seeing, you know, more and more of those uh, partnerships. You know, Ford uh, following suit, uh, Stellantis, the maker of uh, Jeep and Chrysler, similar deal where, where they're setting up uh, battery plants in North America and sort of on and on. But those projects, I would say, are much further behind where where we have uh, Tesla which you know, for years has been making batteries out in Nevada with Panasonic and GM, which has a partnership with LG and in US. Our thanks to Craig Trudell, Bloomberg Global Autos Editor. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. This is the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast, available on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live each weekday, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also watch us live every weekday on YouTube and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.